Hey, so glad you're here today. If you want to go ahead and kind of preempt a little bit, uh, we're going to start off in 2 Kings today. So turn your Bible, 2 Kings chapter 6 today, if you'd like to kind of get that started. Uh, real quickly, I just want to tell you that, <clears throat> you know, quick story. So when I was in second grade, uh, I contracted this virus, it's the mumps. And so, you know, that was back before you had the vaccines and things like that. And so when I got the mumps when I was eight years old, man, the left side of my head just exploded, okay? Uh, you know, it gets in your saliva glands and things like that. Really intense fever, really high fever. And because of that, what happened to me, I didn't, we didn't know this at the time, but when that was all said and done and I was healed, uh, I had lost the hearing in my left ear. And so I go back to school and, you know, you know, I get the hearing test that you always get when you're in elementary school and they find out that I don't have hearing in my left ear anymore. <clears throat> and I don't know if you've ever noticed this or not, but I, you know, a lot of times in conversations and things like that, I'm always turning my head or I'm trying to get on a certain side of you, things like that. And in a crowded room, like a room like this, or like especially in a restaurant, man, I, I really can't make out words a lot of times. You know, I have really, really struggle. And sometimes people can be talking and I hear sounds, but it doesn't really sound like words. It sounds like, you know, something like gibberish, you know, it really does. Like, like somebody speaking in tongues or something like that. I really can't figure it all out. And it's really kind of tough. And so what happens is my, my perception of the world around this, around me is kind of limited. You know, it really is. And a lot of times I'm kind of clueless as to what's going on in the world around me. And a lot of people go, yeah, finally you noticed. All right. We, yeah, we've known that a long time. And uh, it can be kind of frustrating. One thing that's really a great advantage, though, is I sleep great because I turn my head over on my right ear on my pillow. I mean, I'm out and nobody can wake me up. It's fantastic. It really is. It's really, really good when you're a dad and you have newborn children, right? You know, your wife's elbow. Oh, I didn't hear him crying. I had no idea. And so that's, that's been going on. But here's what, here's what the net effect of that is. And I've, I've kind of thought about this a few times in the last few years, you know, is that I mean, how, much of my, how much have I missed out on in life, you know? Because I just haven't been aware of everything. I haven't been aware of what everybody said. I've missed so many things that people have said to me or things that people have said around me. You know, how, how much have I lost? And, you know, my perception of the world is not the same as most of you, all right? Because most of you have all your hearing and things like that. And I know we all have things like this. I mean, for some of us, eyesight, it could be other things that are going on. But, you know, how much of my perception has been limited by, you know, that little bit of a handicap, you know, and I don't complain about it very much, but I bring that up to say that for you and I, our ability to, you might say, excel in life, to do well in life, really depends upon our perception of reality. And when I say reality, I mean all of reality, both dimensions of reality. You see, there is a material dimension. That's the one I'm kind of limited on. But there's also a spiritual dimension of reality. And we have to be able to see into both. And most people are like me when it comes to their perception of what you might call the, the spiritual realm or the spiritual world, in that they do not have a keen awareness of the totality of the world that we live in. So in Second uh, Kings chapter 6, there's an incredible story. There's a, a man, a man of God named Elisha. He was one of the great prophets of the Old Testament. And what was happening was that there was a king, king of Aram, who was going to war with Israel. And something like this was happening. The king of Aram would sit down with his advisors and he would say, hey, let's go, let's go raid this village. Let's go raid this town in Israel. And then the the, uh, the prophet Elisha would go to the king of Israel and he would say, hey, listen, the king of Aram is going to come raid this town or that village. And so then they would be ready for it. This happened three or four times. And the king of Aram got really frustrated. He's like, 
what is happening? It's like they're reading our mail. How is this happening? And so finally, one of them spoke up and said, well, there's a prophet in Israel named Elisha. And man, he just, he is like, it's like he's in the room with you, the room where it happens, right? He can, you know, for some reason, he's able to hear God and know exactly what's going on. So the king of Aram says, okay, we got to get rid of this guy. All right, let's snuff him out. And so then here's what happens in 2 Kings chapter 6. They sent, look at verse 14. He sent horses and chariots and a strong force there, which was Elisha's house. And they went by night and they surrounded the city. All right, so you can just imagine at night, all these soldiers are gathering up around this village. And when the servant of the man of God, the servant of Elisha got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Love, verse 16. Look at this. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. What? There's nobody here. And Elisha prayed, Oh, Lord, open his eyes so he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked, and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So he saw these radiant, luminous beings and these chariots and things like that. And they're going, I don't know that angels run around in chariots, but it was something that his mind could understand. But he was able to peel back the veil, so to speak, and see the spiritual realm around him. And I believe that in eternity, when the veil is pulled back, we're going to see the full scope of the reality that we've lived our lives in, we'll know that there's so much more happening in other dimensions of reality that we really can't see. And I think we're going to be stunned beyond all belief. We're going to be staggered by the truth of the reality of the world that we live in. We're going to be shocked at the powers around us, the powers whose only goal all our lives was to seduce us into defying God, to rebelling against God, to disobeying God, into sin. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 says this, we are wrestling with rulers and authorities, the powers who govern this world of darkness and spiritual forces that control evil in the heavenly world. See that word wrestling there? That's a word for an intense battle that we have every day. Sometimes you might have gotten up today like, why is going to church so hard? You know, why is life so hard? Because it is a battle with these forces that are all around us. And many times we don't have this perception of everything that's happening. Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul, this is one of the most important passages anywhere in your Bible. And he's going to lay out for you and me this, the totality of, of the obstacles that you and I are facing as men and women living in this sinful, broken, fallen world where something is wrong with everything. Does it feel that way? You watch the news at night, man, everything is broken. Why? Romans chapter 3, look at verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have become together worthless. 
There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are like open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. And the poison of vipers is on their lips. And their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood and ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. And there is no fear of God before their eyes. Wow, Les, that's really depressing. (laughs) All right. Look at what he says in verse 9. At the end of verse 9, we've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are under sin. But Paul starts off saying, are we any better? I love this about the Apostle Paul. Paul doesn't say, are you any better? No, he includes himself in this. He really does. He does not hold himself up as better than anyone else. He said in 1 Timothy chapter 1, I was shown mercy as the worst of sinners, and God has shown his unlimited patience with me. But then look at what he says about Jews and Gentiles alike being under sin. Really can't overstate the importance of that little phrase. Paul does not say the the human dilemma is that people commit sins. He says the human dilemma is that we are all under sin. Galatians 3.22 says this, The scriptures show that the whole world is bound by sin and imprisoned under the power of sin. All right? So that means that all people... Jews and Gentiles, religious, atheists, committed, apathetic, everybody is under the power of sin. Regardless of race, color, creed, all are enslaved to sin, dominated by sin. And here's something I want you to know today, that in God's word, sin is not portrayed or pictured to you and me as some mindless force like gravity or electricity. Instead, it's personified, it's portrayed as a living thing, this malevolent, cunning ruthless thing. Sin is crouching at your door, God told Cain. Romans chapter 7, Paul says, sin sprang to life and I died. He says in Romans chapter 7, sin seized the opportunity when the commandment came. I was told not to do something and I wanted to do it and I died. You see, no one has the power or the strength or the insight to rescue themselves from sin's power. There's no Shawshank redemption moment here where someone is smart enough and dedicated enough to kind of escape from this prison. The grip is too tight. The chains are too strong. The prison walls are too high. And if people are ever going to be released from this prison, so to speak, you don't need a teacher. You don't need a guide. You don't need an example to follow. You don't need an eightfold path. You don't need an enlightenment or an ethical code to follow. You need to have a liberator, someone to set you free. Jesus said this in John chapter 8, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And then they argued back and said, wait, 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 wait. We're Abraham's descendants. We've never been the slave of anyone. That wasn't true. They've been slaves of Egypt, slaves of Babylon, et cetera, et cetera. But Jesus said this, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. But if the Son will set you free, you will indeed be free. Nothing else can set you free. I'm the only one. And so what Paul does here is to kind of prove his point, he gathers up phrases from all over the Old Testament. You know, they didn't have chapters and verses back in those days, but he has 13 phrases here in Romans chapter 3 from Psalms, Proverbs, Isaiah, and Ecclesiastes. And his purpose is to prove what he has described. It would be like the staggering, shocking power of sin. The first thing he tells you and me is that sin is going to pry you away from God. Look at verses 10 and 12. 
There's no one righteous, not even one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned away. That's an amazing statement, isn't it? Think of all the nice, clean living people that you know. Great folks. And we look at some people in some religions, we say, man, they're better They're better at Christianity than Christians are, you know? And God lovingly looks at them and says, there's none among them righteous, not even one. Let's be honest, we really struggle with this. I know I do. So I can look around the world and say, man, there's some good people out there. There are some really, really good people. You know, I'm going to go see my mom at the nursing home this afternoon. There's several people that come up there on Sunday afternoons just to, you know, just to be with the folks and do things for them and say, there's some good, good people in the world. But look at Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way. And the Lord had to lay on Jesus the iniquity of us all. No exceptions. This is a spiritual reality that theologians refer to as the total depravity of man. We associate that word depravity with unspeakable evil, like, you know, ISIS or Nazi Germany, something like that. But And some skeptics think that when Christians use this word depravity, we mean that, man, everybody out there in the world is evil and without a conscience, with no sense of right or wrong. And they can look across the human race and say, that's just simply not true. There's some people out there who do some good things. What do we mean by the depravity of man? What we mean is this, as a result of the fall, Every part of you and me, our mind, our will, our emotions, even our very flesh, is infected and damaged by sin. You know, when I got mumps when I was in the second grade, I had this virus, this contagion throughout my body, throughout my body. And as a result, everything we do, everything we say, every thought is polluted by sin. Isaiah 64, 6 says this, we are all infected and impure with sin. And when we display our righteous deeds, they are nothing but filthy rags. And like autumn leaves, we wither and fall, and our sins sweep us away like the wind. I want to show you a picture real quick. This is Foster Moreau. And last last week was NFL free agency. He's 25 years old. He played four seasons for the Las Vegas Raiders. Last season, he set a career high, 33 catches for over 400 yards. They caught two touchdown passes. Can I just tell you today, you have to be an incredible athlete to do something like that. You really do. So he became a free agent a couple of weeks ago, and he had a chance to be signed by the New Orleans Saints, and they required him to take a physical. And when the physical was over, one of the doctors came to him and said, Mr. Moreau, we're really sorry to inform you that you have cancer. Incredible. Hodgkin's lymphoma. And so he wrote, wrote on Twitter, he said, I will be stepping away from football at this time to battle a new opponent, cancer. What's remarkable is that someone like him could look so great on the outside and perform at such a high level, do amazing things, but inside, his body is infected with cancer. While you and I look at the outer life and it looks good to us, God looks at the inner life. We've talked about this for a couple of weeks now. He sees the outward acts, but he also sees the inward motives that cause them or that govern them. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said this, When you give to the poor, don't be like those hypocrites. They blow a horn in the places of worship in the streets so people might respect them. And I tell you, they have all the reward they're ever going to get. 
And so the theology of depravity, and it really shouldn't come as a surprise to any parent. What parent has ever had to teach their child to be selfish, right? Or to covet what someone else has or to lie. Why do parents have to devote so much time and energy trying to teach these little cherubs, you know, don't tell the truth, share, obey the rules, think of others instead of yourselves. It's exhausting. It really is. Think about it. And you're like, what is wrong with this kid? The reality is your little cherub, your little angel is totally depraved, okay? That's just the honest truth. Psalm 51.5, surely I was sinful at birth. I was sinful from the time my mother conceived me, David says. Look at verse 11 and 12, where Paul says, There's no one who understands. No one seeks God. Most people don't like to hear the truth of sin's power. And so they're going to say something like this, I just don't understand, which is kind of code for, I can't accept that. You know, the idea that man is by nature terminally ill, with sin. It, it, it runs counter to our modern concepts of anthropology. And in the prevailing psychological and physiological and philosophical religious views of, of man's nature, what do people say? Man is good. Man is basically good. And so in a lot of prevailing thought paradigms, like in Buddhism and Hinduism, humanism and Scientology, the idea is like the good is in there. It's just buried deep. You know, it's underneath a bunch of layers of other stuff. And if we can just remove those layers of misinformation and deception and, and hurt and pain, et cetera, et cetera, given the right environment, the right stimulus, the right information, then that good will blossom. It will finally come out. But the root cause, the Bible says, it's not the environment man is raised in. It's not a lack of opportunity, not a lack of education or affection, a lack of direction. It's not that your mom and your dad put your diapers on too tight. None of that, okay? Look at verse 11 again. No one seeks God. What that means is that unless God helps you, no one's going to ever seek God on their own. And God helps everybody seek him. That's what it says in Acts chapter 17. But think about this. All over the world, people flock to temples and mosques, synagogues, cathedrals, and churches, filling up worship areas, going through ceremonies, observing rituals, and doing what you're doing now, listening to teachers. What are they looking for? Everyone to a man and to a woman would say, I'm looking for God. I'm looking for God. God says, no, you're really not. Really not. See, he looks at the deepest heart, the truest of the true. And God says, there's no one on their own who's searching for me. They might be looking for a God, but not the God. You see, the desire of mankind, the great hope of mankind, is some kind of a self-serving salvation system so that we can generate some righteousness on our own, some goodness on our own, and then we'd have to be accepted into heaven. They'd have to throw the doors open for us because we've been so good. We've been so committed, so dedicated. But Ephesians chapter 2 says, It's by grace that you have been saved through your faith. This is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, the undeserved gift of God. It is not a result of your works 
so that no one would be able to take any credit or boast in their salvation when this life is over. But this is what sin does to you and me, is it drives a wedge in between you and me and our relationship with the Lord, and the wedge is going to remain there until you and I come to a place of humility and we agree with God. We say, God, you know, I'm a prisoner of my sin, and I'm a captive in this prisoner. I'm powerless to escape. And Lord Jesus, I know that you came to liberate me. You didn't come just to be a moral example like Thomas Jefferson thought. You came to free me from this, this prison. You died for me, Jesus. You died to break the chains of sin. And we have to be honest and humble enough to say, Lord Jesus, my only hope is you. My only hope is you. Psalm 39 says this, Lord, remind me how brief my time on earth will be. Remind me how fleeting my life is. My entire lifetime is just a moment to you. Each of us is but a breath. We are merely moving shadows and all our busy rushing ends in nothing. We heap up wealth not knowing who will spend it. And so, Lord, where do I put my hope? My only hope is in you. All around us are all sorts of people that want to put their hope in themselves. We just have to say, Lord Jesus, I put my hope in you and you alone. So number two, sin is not only just not only is going to like drive a wedge between you and the Lord, but sin also pollutes your relationships. Look at the verses 12 through 15. Paul talks about the words that we speak. And we all know that all of our relationships are built upon the words that we speak, the foundation of communication, all right? And he says, they have together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves, et cetera, et cetera. Look at that phrase, they have together become worthless. You said, wait a minute, wait a minute, Les. He's, if we're worthless, then why did Jesus go to the cross for us? Easter Sunday, we're going to have a message. It's called A Hill Worth Dying On. Very excited about this. It's a message about the great worth that God places on you. And so, yes, bring your friends, bring your family, uh, bring everybody you can at Easter because we're going to talk about the great worth that Jesus places on each one of us. We're going to do that. But worthless here in the original language means something that has been corrupted, sort of like, you know, a contagion, an infection, and it can no longer fulfill its original purpose. I love Romans 3.23 in the message translation because it says this, we've compiled this long and sorry record as sinners and proved that we are utterly incapable of living the glorious life God wills for us. And when he says there's no one who does good, not even one, it's tough to hear. It really is. But it really couldn't be any clearer. Does it really, think about this, does it bother you that the Bible says that no one does good. Anyone remember that Tom Cruise movie, Minority Report? Anybody remember that? Only a few? Oh, good movie. It really is. Really, really good. But what is the, the, the premise of the movie is that they had the technology to see other people's thoughts, and then they could record their thoughts. And so just imagine that someone could create a device, a machine, that could see and record thoughts, like that movie, Minority Report. And what if we bought one, you know, for the purpose of church security, of course. You know, that's what we that's what it's for. Okay. And it's sort of like an airport scanner. You know, you step into it, these big arms wave all around you. Don't you love getting scanned at the airport? You know, that kind of thing. And the security team is looking at the screen while you're sitting there. 
And they can see images of everything that you've thought or imagined over the last 24 hours. Looking for intent. That's all we're doing. That's all we're doing. Okay. How many of us would still come to church? You know, I know I would come. I would call in sick. I really would. I mean, it'd be pointless to even come. It'd be like, we got to get a new pastor. That guy is sick. I mean, he really is, you know? Well, actually, a lot of it would be pretty entertaining because I know 95% of the people would be like, their thought would be, I wonder how long Les is going to preach today, you know? Or somebody else like, if Michael sings Honey in the Rock again, I'm walking, you know? I'm out of here. But the Bible is abundantly clear so many places that God is very, very aware of our inner character. First Chronicles chapter 28, David said to his son Solomon, he said, know the God of your father, serve him with your whole heart and mind because the Lord searches everyone's mind and heart. He understands everything you think, every desire, every motive, and every thought. Mm. And so Paul here is sort of like a prosecuting attorney. He has to prove his case that we are all under sin. The good people and the bad people, the Jews and the Gentiles, everybody is under sin. And so like nothing else about our lives, he brings out this evidence that it's our speech habits, the words we say that are a reflection of our heart. And when I was reading this passage, I, just, I couldn't help but think about our families and our marriages and our friendships. Because how many times have we just laid waste with a wrecking ball in our relationships because of things that we've said. Matthew chapter 12, Jesus said, For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man out of the treasure of his heart brings forth good things. An evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. And when Paul says here, their throats are open graves, what he means is that, man, deep down in your bones, there's a rotten corpse there. And, and the vulgarity, the slander, the criticism, the mockery, all that that comes out of our hearts and our, uh, out of our mouths, it's spreading death. Proverbs 18.21 says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Could we put it any more starkly than that? And if I were to go around the room today and I were to ask everyone, what is your greatest regret in life? And how many of us would put something that we said to somebody we really cared about in our top 10, maybe even our top five. You might even put it at number one. There was something that we said to our parents, our spouse, one of our children or a friend, and the relationship just died. It was as if life left the relationship because death and life are in the power of the tongue. He also says their tongues practice deceit those little white lies, you know, when we kind of just kind of play games with the truth. We're not really lying, just kind of messing around a little bit, you know, those little innocent deceptions. Did you know that when you get caught lying to one of your loved ones, that something in the relationship dies? See, people who know us, people who depend on us and rely on us, what happens is it erodes their trust in us. If you can't trust someone, you can't be transparent with them and you can't be authentic. And the person you lie to will always have their guard up <clears throat> and your relationship becomes something like Star Trek. It might be your husband, your wife, your, your kids, your friends. But anytime you get close, it's like full power to the shields, Mr. Scott, <laughs> you know, 
Captain, we're giving it all we got. <laughs> trust and transparency are two sides of the same coin. If you want transparency, you have to have trust. If you want to have trust, you have to have truth. Lying will pollute your relationships with your loved ones. Psalm 105 says this, I cannot tolerate anyone who has arrogant eyes and a proud heart. My eyes will watch for the faithful in the land so they can be seated with me. Anyone who practices deceit will not sit in my palace. Anyone who's a liar will not stand in my sight. Then Paul says the poison of vipers is on their lips. Hmm. Those are those sharp, cutting, caustic words that go deep into the tissues of someone else's heart. You know, back when I was five years old, <laughs> I know it's I know it's kind of crazy, you know, but I was bitten by a water moccasin. Like, man, unless you had a rough childhood. Yeah, it was it was tough. It really was. <laughs> but I was bitten by a water moccasin when I was in kindergarten. I was rushed to the hospital. And I remember laying there on the hospital bed and the doctor took out a scalpel and he made some incisions on my foot. And then the weirdest thing, they took these suction cups and they they like put these suction cups on my feet, on my foot there over the over the bat over the bite. And they were just, you know, sucking out like blood. I mean, it was just, it was, I'm sorry, I don't mean to be grizzly here, but you know, they were sucking blood out and they were putting in this bowl over here. What were they doing? They were trying to drain out all this poisoned, infected blood that was in my foot. Because if they didn't, my foot would have been gone into necrosis and died. But I remember the next day, my foot just throbbing in pain. Why? <clears throat> because that poison was damaging my foot. All of us here today could tell a story of a person who poisoned us. It might have been a parent, a friend, a teacher, a coach, a minister, who said something so painful that you've just never been able to forget it. And it's just been with you all your life. It might have been sarcasm. It might have been criticism. It might have just been something said in anger. But it made you feel worthless. It made you feel ashamed. That's why James says this, the human tongue is physically small, but what it tremendous effect it can boast of, it can poison the whole body and it can make the whole of life a blazing hell. We're all guilty doing the same thing in our own lives, aren't we? And we have this kind of golden rule in reverse. We have done to others what we don't want done to us. This is what's on the inside. This is what God, this is what, this is what God says is our real problem and God sees our true heart. He also says their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. We call it cursing. The Bible calls it cursing. We call it cussing. It's profanity or swearing, but it's all the same. It's all sourced in the sin of the human heart. And when he says cursing and bitterness, think about bitterness for a moment. What is bitterness? Bitterness is that smoldering anger in your deep heart. You're like, that, that person has been unfair to me. Life has been unfair to me. God has been unfair to me. And you have that smoldering anger, and you're like a, a dormant volcano. And if the wrong thing is said or the wrong thing is done, boom, here comes Vesuvius. All right, here comes Mount St. Helens, and it all comes out. And we start cursing, swearing, and we start using profanity. What are we doing? We're, we're, we're doing this for all sorts of different reasons, okay? Why do we do this? Number one, we, we, we have an immunity to it. We've developed an immunity. Our world is full of cursing right now. It's out of control. We all know this. If you're older than 25, you've seen the change. 
in our conversations, if you stream a TV series, uh, you go to a critically acclaimed movie these days, you listen to the music that we listen to, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, I mean, it's incredible. <clears throat> Here's what happens. It's like antibiotics. <clears throat> Curse words, they lose their power with overuse and we develop an immunity to them. And we've become inoculated with so much profanity, we don't think twice about hearing it, and then we don't think twice about using it. See, the more, the more you hear it, the more likely you are to use it. And the more likely you are to use it, the more damage you're going to do to the people that you love. Colossians chapter 3. You used to walk in these ways in a life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger. Rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. You notice how those three things are, or those four things are connected together? Anger, rage, and malice, and then language. So yeah, we have cruise control in our cars. We need to have curse control in our lives. We really do. We also curse because of immaturity. You know, at that moment that you're really angry with somebody, you're frustrated and you swear at them, and after you, you know, <clears throat> let out a few good swear words at somebody or something, you feel a little better. You know, it's, it's kind of cathartic, right? Really is. But think about this. Maturity is sacrificing short-term pleasure for long-term gains. And for that three to five minute span, when you really let somebody have it, and you really cut loose, <clears throat> your criticism laced with profanity, it made you feel better. Then you go back to that person you love and say, I'm sorry. I lost my cool, been a hard day, but the relationship is damaged. And you have to deal with that damage, that poison for years to come. That's why James 1.26 says, if anyone appears to be religious, but cannot control his tongue, he deceives himself. And we may be sure that that religion is useless. We also curse because of a lack of integrity. We want someone to really believe what we're saying. You know, we say blank yes, <laughs> you know, blank no. We add a few salty words to our oaths. What we're really saying to that person is, I'm not really a man or a woman of my words. So I got to really like put some hot sauce on the words to kind of get you to believe me. You know, that's what that means. This is why Jesus said in Matthew chapter five, he said, I tell you, don't ever swear an oath at all. Don't swear an oath using the name of heaven because heaven is God's throne. Say only yes if you mean yes, and no if you mean no. If you say more than yes or no, it's from the evil one. All right? What Jesus is saying is that you and I should be such men and women of our word, men and women of truth, that when we say yes or no, that's all I need to hear. I know you're going to do it or you're not. The other one is this. We curse because we want to cause injury. You know, sometimes, you know, a simple, you want to, you know, kind of wound somebody as simple, you're ugly would be nice, you know, but we got to put some hot sauce on that and it could go real deep or hurt them real bad, you know? We really want to hurt somebody. We crank up the mean factor. And so we add some profanity to that because we want to injure that person. We all know that's wrong. And the last one, we curse because we want to be included. You know, among certain groups, cursing serves like a social function, doesn't it? It really does. It, it's a form of bonding, Right. This is why I cursed terribly as a teenager because I wanted to be accepted by a certain group of guys. And if I was going to hang out with that group of guys, I had to talk the way they talked. So yeah, the Bible says in Proverbs 6.12, a worthless person, a wicked man, is he who goes about with a perverse mouth. Yeah. 
So the words we speak, man, communication is the foundation to all of our relationships. You know, last week I was leading a memorial service. A sweet, dear lady uh, is connected to our church had passed. And there's a big family gathering. And we had had the you know, graveside service first, and they wanted to go to lunch, you know, and the whole family going to go to Saltgrass Steakhouse. And he's like, Les, do you want to go? Yeah, I guess. I guess I'll go, yeah. I'll go to Saltgrass, sure. <laughs> there are lots of kids there. And there's a boy there, about 10 or 11 years old. He was a spitting image of my oldest son, Benjamin, at that age. Man, I didn't want to be creepy, but I kept looking over there looking at him like, wow. It was like being in a time machine right there. Amazing. Man, a flood of memories came rushing back to me. I got a little bit emotional just thinking about it, you know? Benjamin's 28 years old now. He's got a wonderful life. He's got a beautiful wife, a successful career. He's a man of God. I just, I love him dearly. But I have to tell you, all all of... All of my pride, all my kids, is mixed with so much regret. There are so many things I said that I wish I could go back and take back. And I was looking at that little 10 or 11-year-old boy over there at Saltgrass Steakhouse, and I found myself wishing, like I never have before, I could go back and just get a little bit of a do-over, you know, Lord, if Ben were that age again, knowing what I know now, how different of a dad would I be? I know we have a lot of young parents here today, a lot of grandparents here. Man, the days are long, but the years are short, so short. And life is a battle with this soul contagion. What you don't want to do is you don't want to allow this soul contagion to drive a wedge between you and God. And God promises you and me that you will seek me and you will find me if you will seek me with all your heart. All your heart. Are you seeking the Lord today? Are you seeking him with all your heart today? Your family needs you to. Your loved ones need you to. And are you letting this soul contagion pollute your personal relationships? This the the cursing and the bitterness, the smoldering anger, all that's that's there. Is anything more important to your life than your relationship with those you love? David said in Psalm chapter 19, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be a pleasing thing before thee, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. What does redeemer mean? Lord, pay the price to set me free from slavery. That's what it means to be redeemed, to be set free from slavery. You know what's going to keep you and I from doing that? It's the killer bees. The killer bees are, I'm going to bear down. I'm going to buck up. I'm going to better myself. Those are the killer bees. No, we can't do it. We don't have the strength. We don't have the strength. Rather, we should say, Lord, my heart is sick. Lord, heal my heart. Lord, heal my heart. My heart is desperately wicked. There's none good in me, not one. Lord, heal my heart. We're going to sing this song here in a moment called In Christ Alone. That should be the plea of our heart. Lord, you alone, Lord Jesus, in Christ alone do I put my trust. 
in Christ alone. Let's bow our heads together today for just a moment. And I want to ask you just to stop and think about what we said here, that there is a battle going on all around us. And I know there are people here today that I know that there have been disappointments, there have been discouragements, and Lord, you may just be just dismayed here today at all the things that have been going on around you. And what you found is that your relationship with God, there's a wedge that seems like it's driving deeper and deeper between you and the Lord. You want to go before the Lord today and you want to say, Lord, I, I see what's happening now. Lord, it's not you, it's me. I'm, I, I have a soul contagion. Lord Jesus, would you please heal my heart? Lord, you see my heart, you know my heart. I'm going to be honest with you about my heart and what's driving a wedge between you and me. You may be here today and you know, man, the last few weeks, last few months, last few years, my mouth has been out of control. And I have a religion that's worthless. I've been deceiving myself. What you need to do is go before the Lord and say, Lord, it's, it's not up to me. Lord, I've, I've been leaning on the killer bees. I've been trying to bear down. I've been trying to better myself. I've been trying to buck up. Lord, I need you to come in and change my heart. May the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you. And just go before the Lord and say, Lord Jesus, it's in you and you alone, in Christ alone, that I put my trust. And, and just be honest to God about your very heart, about your very heart. So let's be quiet here in this place for just a few minutes. Speak to the Lord about your heart today. And then I'll pray for us and we'll end in a time of worship today. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you have been so, so good to us. And you've been so strong on our behalf, Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, because of what you've done and offering yourself on the cross, paying for our sins, Lord, you have, you have set us free. You have liberated us. And I pray that there's anyone here today who has not been set free from this prison of sin. Lord, I pray that today would be the day, Lord, that they would be able to see uh, who you are, what you do, and all that you have become for them. And I just pray, Lord, today would be the day. And Lord Jesus, for all of us here, I just ask, Lord, that you would just give us a a new courage, Lord, to be honest about our very heart. And Father, just a new courage, Father, to, to speak with you openly and honestly about who we are, where we are. And Lord, I pray that you would just move and work in our hearts in a powerful way, Lord, so that we might truly know how to love the others around us, starting with our spouse, our family, our church family. Lord, show us how to love one another, Lord, the meditations of our heart to be pleasing to you. And so we ask this in your name today, Jesus.